All right. Good afternoon slash morning, depending on wherever it is that you're in the world, everyone. Um, this is a makeup Q&A session for the Q&A session that I uh, missed last week, which I'm very, very sorry for, uh, and that everyone has been yelling at me for because uh, I'm terrible and can't keep to a set schedule. Uh, but with that out of the way, uh, the good news is that we've got, you know, four for the price of two, I suppose, crammed into this Q&A in the sense that we're going to look at four different topics uh, instead of just the two like we normally do because we're sort of going for a fortnight and there's been four videos in that time. Um, but I suppose that also means that we have to get through everything uh, a little bit quicker than we normally would. Uh, and normally we're really bad at sticking to a schedule as is. So this is going to be a challenge for all of us. Um uh, even still, standard operating rhythm is that if you do have any questions, the easiest place to put it is in the YouTube live chat thing. That way we can bring it up here and we can discuss it. Um, but other than that, what we're going to do is go through game theory, uh, why Australia is an American company, global banking, and um, the case study that we did on Amazon. Um, and hopefully, we're going to get that all done within an hour. Um, I'm not particularly confident that we will do that. Um, but by golly, we are going to try our best. Now, what I'm going to do to try and expedite that process is because everyone here has been on the Q&A session before, uh, yes, everyone here is a seasoned panellist. We don't need to do uh, introductions because if people really want to know about your credentials, they can, uh, you know, go and stalk those other uh, Q&A sessions and, and find out what you're all about. So I, unless anyone has any objections to that, I think we can kind of get straight into which is the first topic. Uh, and one that I found um, particularly interesting, uh, one of these kind of strange little anomalies that people don't really see that actually have a really interesting backstory, uh, which is why Australia is an American company. First thing I've got to bring up is half as interesting stole my video idea. So boo. Um, yeah, Sam from Wendover, who also owns Half as Interesting, um, put that video up two weeks after my one went up. I think it went up on Thursday night. Um, so I don't know if he was being cheeky and just stole a video idea that he didn't think people would kind of look into or if that was, you know, someone suggested it to him after watching our video or what went on there. Um, but I'm going to assume it was all in good faith and that he's not been a, a cheeky little bugger um, trying to steal my video idea. But either way, um, I still think we explored the topic in a much more interesting manner. I hope you all agree. Uh, if not, well, that's fine as well. But uh, even still, did anyone sort of take away anything from the fact that um, that was the case? Or I don't know, it's... Is anyone like sort of here? Because most of you guys have some, some really interesting sort of insights into these kinds of strange anomalies. Um, have anything that's, that's similar that, um, hey, you know, maybe even I can use for another video or something like that into the future? Or does anyone have any particular thoughts on it just to get us kicked off? Uh, I, I guess like the one thing that I took away from it, and it's but it's been a couple of weeks uh, and I remember seeing the half as interesting uh, video and uh, starting it. And I'm like, okay, it's the same thing as uh, everything that you did only except with uh, puns and uh, you know, Sam's uh, silliness. Uh, I would add, it reminded me a lot of uh, sovereign debts. So sovereign issued notes. Uh, so when a, country wants to raise uh, money from investors, usually to fund uh, you know, public expenditures 
or to uh, conduct or go in um, long term on a project, they will issue uh, notes. And uh, when they issue these notes, they usually go through underwriters. Um, and these underwriters are, you know, large uh, banking houses like Goldman Sachs, uh, UBS, Credit Suisse, who will underwrite uh, uh, these um these notes and in the process of doing that they have to release a lot of information about the country itself uh, and a lot of the economic statistics uh which are otherwise not available or not readily uh gathered um so that's uh, it's a use it's actually a very useful uh, way of getting an insight into the country itself and seeing what goes on uh behind the scenes so it kind of reminded me of that uh but other than that it's uh i can't <laughs> quite remember anything from it <laughs> wow okay obviously it had a, a massive impact on you then that's great <laughs> that's what we want to see um no no but i think it's one of those things that there's probably not too much to discuss outside of hey this is kind of a weird curiosity it's a little bit of an insight into um you know what we sort of see um you know it's kind of cool to, to see it as it relates to obviously you know the 2008 mortgage crisis you know the, the desperation of the times that gives us an insight into things like um you know deposit insurance schemes which are a big thing in the united states but um but weren't up until recently quite as big in in you know countries like australia uh and also hey you know maybe it's just one of, one of those sort of things where it's it gives us a really visible insight into how proactive um you know countries like australia were during that time to make sure um the people were um you know really really uh you know, sure, because at the end of the day, a lot of that was a crisis of confidence as much as it was a crisis of, you know, structural problems or savings gluts or, or any other things like that. Um, but I think outside of outside of that, I think the reason I started with Australia uh, LLC is because it was definitely the easiest one to cover off on, um, which means that we can spend a little bit more time on... Uh, on game theory uh, actually um hang on hang on uh i think there was a question ah here we go uh, I, I guess we can discuss this why doesn't australia just nationalize the coal and uranium mines they tried political lobbying um well they tried to introduce a a tax for um you know for, for mined uh, profits for you know especially for multinationals that exported a lot of the profits um but they got shut down by uh, major lobbying from the minerals council uh and it ne never went anywhere so yeah that's the only reason i brought that question up um kind of a bit of a depressing one anyway on to game theory so uh captain Locke, i think you're probably the person to speak to because correct me if i'm wrong this is kind of your area of expertise yeah, uh, yeah. so do you want to give us a rundown about um uh and anyone obviously you know feel free to jump in as well give us a rundown of, of you know game theory you know any kind of uh things that you'd want to add on top of the video or take away from the video or um correct from the video because uh, I think it's a really important thing to understand and a lot of people kind of just simplify it. And the point that I was really trying to take away here is that Prisoner's Dilemma is just one aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, so don't don't learn Prisoner's Dilemma and be like, oh, yep, yep, that's, uh, you know, that's game theory all done because it's, it's not really the case. <laughs> yeah, so um, I sat down with G uh, last week when we were going to do the live stream, but then that, that fell through and we had written down some notes uh, things that we kind of found issues with or things that, you know, we wanted to address, uh, and I cannot find those notes now. Um, 
<laughs> so I'm going to pull up, uh, you know, some of the things that I can just quickly find. Um, yeah, right off the start, you, you talked about how um, the economists believe that uh, people are rational, uh, which is, you know, it's true, but it's not what economists traditionally think of when we describe, you know, rationality within models. We, we gee, if you want to jump in at any point. Uh, uh, okay, I, was, I was waiting. I was waiting for you to. Yeah, the key, um, the key word is, you want to say it with me? <laughs> wait, wait there's, there's two. No, no, what you're on oh, about. Okay. There's, there's two words. There's completeness and transitive. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, preferences. Those are the word I was looking for. Yeah, oh, okay. Oh. Those preferences. Uh, yeah, is that we, we describe ration, and, and people within game theory describe rationality uh, as uh, being consistent uh, decision making. Uh, with when faced with a different set of available actions, uh, and it's not really in the nature of their likes or or dislikes. Uh, so it's one of the uh, assumptions we have to. Not it's not one of the core assumptions of game theory, but it's a uh, you start with this assumption and then you can tweak it and get rid of it if you want. But it's the idea that a person knows their preferences, and they know the preferences of other people, uh, such as in like a prisoner's dilemma. The prisoner's dilemma is uh, it, it's they clear. would prefer not to go to prison. Yeah, yeah, it's a, you know, the preference, but they also know how the other person values it because they're told up front. Um, whereas in other games, you don't know those those actual preferences. Um, and then additionally, uh, what, G, you want, uh, what was the, the term that we described uh, with, with this is that you gave, uh, you, you covered, you skimmed about. Uh, the information like asymmetry. Yeah, you skimmed about five percent of like what is actually in game theory, um, like. Uh, so, yeah. so it essentially uh, the issue is economists took a mathematical concept such as game theory, and added this uh, assumption of complete and transitive preferences on top of it to come to solutions uh, to scenarios which don't typically exist. Like you said in the video. Um, oftentimes, pris uh, prisoners can collude together. Um, oftentimes, they, you know, people don't have enough evidence to get them jailed for a certain amount of time, and that's not an issue with game theory or the application of it. It's just uh, an issue with the assumptions you make when you try and apply game theory. Um, and there are other methods in which um, people look at game theory. Um, based on probability, which is a lot more common, uh, especially because uh, very typically options aren't binary. And if you base around information asymmetry, people then go, well, what can we do? Well, we can assume people might have a chance of doing this. And that turns the very basic prisoner's dilemma into a Bayesian game, which is, in my opinion, far more interesting to look at from a mathematical perspective. Yep as well as um, they're much more applicable um, than just the prisoner's dilemma. Yep. So, much, so perhaps I was overly glib with my uh, video that was entirely about how, um, you know, uh, game theory was not this one typical subject and, and I, uh, in my... <laughs> In, in my efforts to do that, uh, narrowed it down to, to one specific subject uh, and didn't really sort of present how broad it truly was. Yeah. Yeah. It came <laughs> on kind of fell into that trap of uh, the uh, what I like to call the prisoner's dilemma trap, which is uh, when... Using prisoner's dilemma. 
Yeah, using, first, first of all, using prisons is one of Second of all, teaching uh, is one of, the, one of the things that I absolutely hate about teaching game theory is the introduction of game theory using the prisoner's dilemma. Uh, prisoner's dilemma is, is a silly game. Uh, it's not the best game uh, to introduce people to it. It's more of a, I, I feel like we use it because of its shock value. Like, oh my gosh, what's, we have a game where the Nash equilibrium is both people cheat and or both people defect and uh, therefore uh, their payoff is uh, arguably worse than what it could have been. No way. Like that. How is that? Well, here's the math max behind. It. I'm like, okay, great, that's awesome. But uh, like, it's just one game, and prisoners' dilemma is again one game, and its model yeah. is not applicable uh, to a lot of other uh, real life well, to, situations. To, to, to most real life situations, yeah, to most. It, it's it's just incredibly neat and tidy, and it's just you know it. it uh, it's it's more assumptions than it is, um, you know, real yeah. life. But uh, yeah, and no, I think that was, I mean, that was kind of tr that was the, the takeaway I was trying to apply there. But um, but how would you sort of then um, say that that a majority of of um, you know game theory, at least in you know so, sort of the space that it's used in, in business and economics, is actually used for um, cooperative game theory, how we work with um, you know fellow participants in in trade deals or you know uh trade partners business partners things of that nature rather than uh direct competition would you sort of so, uh, second the notion that it, it, it's probably more important than let's say uh, traditional competitive game theory um so there was a couple of thoughts uh that i had about that and i'm now remembering them um the first <laughs> is uh you, you mentioned in like the video that like you know the corporate boardroom isn't going to be sitting around uh doing game theory and I'm like, yeah, that that's actually true. Like, no one's going to, you know, uh, the corporate board isn't going to sit around and say, well, what are the game theory, what do the models tell us? In uh, my experience, what... the corporate boardroom tends to be uh, more concerned with what's for lunch. But, yeah, uh... ex exactly. Um, and the, but the game theory application really comes at a lower level where it's something that you can model and something that is going, it's going to occur in this way. And your assumptions are very rigorous and your assumptions are, are you're pretty 100% sure they are incorrect or they're correct. Uh, and if they are incorrect, uh, you will identify them early on and address them and uh, change your assumptions and thereby change the model. Um, it's now in the corporate, now in the cooperative sense, uh, I have seen stuff uh, like one of the introductory things that we, uh, that I've seen uh, with, with game theory is showing uh the investment game which is um a non-simultaneous game so it means one person makes a move like chess and then another person makes a move um so you start off with uh, a business that proposes to an investor saying that if you invest with us we will return uh you know some amount of profit now uh in the game when we start with describing it is the investor has one or two options. They can either invest or not invest. And if they invest, then the game will be one step from being complete. The last last thing that the other the, the business can do is uh, decide whether to return all the pro the portion of profits owed to the investor or to run away with everything. And if the investor, knowing uh, that or thinks that the other um, that the business is going to run away with the profits isn't going to invest in the first place. That logically like makes sense. Now in the real world, we don't live in this one-off game. Occasionally people actually, you know, 
throw out these types of, uh, of schemes and then they run away with the money at, at the start. Uh, what, what we're really looking for is uh, cooperativeness. So if the investor wants um, to really uh, see a payoff, they're going to uh, look for uh, the history of the cooperation. Like if there's a history of cooperation, then it kind of makes sense that the cooperation is going to continue forward. But just in case we're going to have like, say, a control in there, that kind of uh, it's a punishment uh, wherein if a person you know, uh, screws you over, you have a way of punishing them. Um, sure, you might take a hit, but it forces them to then enter into cooperation with you. So in that sense, like I've seen, you know, that I've seen the cooperative stuff. But beyond that, like, I honestly, I, I don't know. It's beyond me. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And, and then briefly, I just want to um, touch on, um, you know, transitivity. Is transitivity a word? Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll call it a word um, in game theory because I think that's really important. Now, uh, maybe you're more qualified to explain um, the importance of transitivity in game theory, um, you know, uh, more so than I am. So do you want to give us a brief rundown of, of that and its importance? And Or if not, I can, I can try and do it. Uh, so essentially, if transit transitivity is the basic assumption, if you think C is better than B and you think B is better than A, then naturally you should assume C is better than A. If that assumption doesn't hold, typically you shouldn't be able to make any assumptions or be able to make a function of someone's utility in any given process. So it's basically a test to see if you're rational. Oh, we just picked up, by the way. Oh, oh, he ran away. Yep. Okay, that's all right. He yeah, has a link. He can speaker. come back on. Uh, that that's all good. He's probably just going to Google the definition of transitivity. Um, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, I joke, of course. So, um, yeah, I think that there's this. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong. Also, sort of an application in the sense that um, transitivity is particularly important when we're looking at competitive game theory, where there's some um, level of, of back and forth, um, where there is a you know a better option in relation to the option that was made by your competitor. So I think the maybe maybe it's getting you know, sort of overly complex um, for the sake of you know what it is that we're looking at, which is a very, very fundamental, very basic introduction to the idea of what game theory is and how we sort of um, really uh, mechanically and um, you know the uh, methodically look at how we compete with one another. Um, but, you know, uh, if you sort of then take that assumption that, you know, um, hey, if, if A is better than B and B is better than C, then A has got to be better than C. That makes sense. And, yeah. But if we then sort of take it and then we replace A with, um, with rock, uh, B with scissors and, um, you know, C with paper, sure, uh, you know, A is, is better than B. But A is not better than C in the sense that that uh, you know paper beats rock, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. the the violation of, of transitivity, which you would never use, <laughs> right? It's a so I, I, as it relates to game theory, it would probably be best to say um, if instead of five years in prison and you had two years in prison and you had ten years in prison, it'd be like saying, well, I prefer eight years in prison to ten years in prison. I prefer two years in prison to 10 years in prison, but I prefer two years in prison over eight years in prison. 
So yeah. that that's a, that's a transitive process. But then if you turn around and say, oh no, I randomly assume that I'll, I'll prefer eight years in prison more than two years because I'll make more friends in prison or something like that, then that would break transitivity and therefore you'd violate the you know the way game theory is meant to work. And also the the one thing about uh, game theory is that our the games themselves are defined from the outset with strict rules, not because we don't want to violate the rules, but uh, because the game follows from those rules. Now, if you then adjust those rules, it will the game will change. The entire outcome will change. In fact, there's a lot of games out there that are very similar to The Prisoner's Dilemma that are just slightly different. And because of that, that the, the slightly different preferences or slightly different numbers, they create entirely different outcomes and entirely different analysis. Uh, and this this is just the nature of of game theory, and that's why it's so interesting. It's because if you just poke one thing, uh, something everything else changes, or it like a large outcome, uh, a completely different outcome. Uh, yeah. So I suppose if you were maybe the takeaway is if you were using game theory for practical applications. Oh, I'm gonna add Peter back. You just pinged me. There we go. Uh, we lost you there, Peter. But you're back now. Um, so if you were to um, be using uh, game theory for uh, let's say you know real world applications where you're going to take uh, you know either competitive or cooperative game theory fundamentals and apply it to some kind of real world scenario that you're looking at. Um, you would really need to make sure that you understood all of the rules of the games. Otherwise, any kind of model that you create uh, would be functionally useless. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and this is like uh, the last thing I, I will add is that people get caught up on, on saying, well, the model isn't uh, doesn't fit for this. Well, if the model doesn't fit for it, you can change it. Um, you know, a model can't be uh, judged on, by an absolute criterion. They're neither right nor wrong. Whether a model is useful or not depends in part on the purpose for which it's used. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think you, you, you're absolutely right. You've sort of banged, yeah, banged, banged, uh, that's a word now as well. I'm just really freestyle making up words tonight. You banged the nail on the head uh, when, when you've got this, which is one of the limitations, which uh, to be honest, I didn't really go into. Um, it's all, game theory is you've, you've really got to know the game um you know understanding the game is half the battle uh understanding the theory is then probably the easy part of it um which by extension i want to um sort of go on from that in the sense that it doesn't mean that it's fundamentally limited in what it can do um i still think that you know the the way that we can apply game theory in the real world especially as it comes to um more sterile environments um is, is really powerful uh and what it's i mean by, it is. what i mean by sterile environments is is um you know if we're looking at game theory in the sense of um you know geopolitics or something like that um there is a lot of moving parts in geopolitics there is all manner of uh, you know variables and factors and things that you know are just unknowable um to someone putting together this this game right and it's impossible to sort of really kind of account for all of those variables like all of those variables and by the time you have put all of it together um things have changed um, but there are sort of some more sterile environments like potentially, you know, futures and, well, you know, equities markets um, where perhaps it is, you know, you do make some assumptions, but um, realistically there are, you know, 
uh, X equals Y type uh, outcomes. And you can use this sort of theory um, to make, you know, hopefully um, some nice profitable uh, investments. Now, what would you say, do you think um, game theory has the capacity to do that um, productively? Or do you think that's one of those things that's idealized by people teaching it and never actually applied in the real world? No, it has application. It, it absolutely have, does. The applications of game theory are amazing. It's far and above beyond what I have, like, no, no, two minutes to explain. Um, it, it, it can be used from anywhere, from war, um, tactics, uh, Battle of Bismarck, from anywhere to soccer tactics, uh, how far you should possibly push up your defender. Uh, to create the best alternative strategy. Um, you could use it in terms of, should I invest in this thing? Should I invest in another thing? Um, you can also look at, obviously, trade negotiations in a one-off setting, maybe. Um, you can use it in continuous games, such as how you run a business and how you build a business. Um, it's, yeah, I, I think game theory is possibly one of the most useful things in economics. Uh, that just gets slightly misused. That's yeah, no, 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 slightly. Yeah, and, and I think very easy for outsiders to look in and be like, "What the heck is all of this?" Um, and I, I would add, like, one of the most fascinating applications of game theory uh, comes not from an analyzing uh, this what I'm about to say as, as a game, but more of using the tools for strict analysis. Um, it turns out it's actually game theory is really useful in uh, information networking and modeling market networking and just general networks of crowds uh, of social interactions, um, both as uh, in a qualitative uh, sense and a quantitative sense. Uh, I have an entire book that's solely dedicated to just this one off you know, branch of game theory, um, which you know, goes into you know search algorithms uh talking about what's uh how do you match uh uh players together how do you uh create an, an efficient auction uh how like how do you style your auction in the first place what's the pros and cons of doing each one and the way that we an we answer all these questions is through by applying uh game theory to it yeah Wow. So um, if you were to, because obviously I'm now cognizant of the time, I want to uh, address sure. this question that we have here. I mean, if you were to sort of point someone to to an area of game theory that, you know, maybe um, they could realistically apply to, you know, their dealings, let's say it's in business or sport or whatever, uh, is there any particular, um, you know, discipline inside game theory that you'd, you'd point people towards? I'd, I'd definitely point to people that if they want to get into it, uh, look into Bayesian games and then take a course in statistics and econo uh, econometrics and see how those two things can be used together to uh, determine efficient strategies, not only in investing, uh, but in nearly anything that involves probability um, and more than two players. Yes, which is, I think, really great. Uh, and, and as a case study as to where you'd use this in the real world, uh, for the video that is going up tomorrow, uh, I've been spending the entire day writing um, the script for that. Um, and believe it or not, I've done a master's degree in business analytics and um, I've still had to uh, desperately go back to she and, and, and uh, Captain Lockyer and go, guys, I've forgotten what a p-value does. 
Um, so <laughs> it's important, and we do use it in, in aerial life, but unfortunately, um, <laughs> practical applications want sometimes these these lovely uh, uh, academic assumptions about you know how exactly we're going to use it are lost. Uh, it's still very important, even for, for legitimately my line of work, but. Um, it's just one of those things that I don't know. I get a computer to do it all for me these days, which is probably uh, probably pretty disappointing because it means that now I'm I'm absolutely completely dumbfounded when it comes to actually. Oh man, I've got to explain this now. Um, so thank you guys for your help. Now, uh, before we move I on, do wanna, I do I do want to. Somebody asked for the book that I was referencing earlier. Uh, oh, yeah. I want to say it's networks, crowds, and markets. Reasoning being, or I'm sorry, reasoning about a highly connected world. And it's by David Aisley and uh, John Kleinberg. So if you missed that, just rewind the the video, and yeah, uh, it's, you'll get it's that caught up here now. So yep. yeah, hopefully got it. Hopefully got it right. Um, now, in one minute and twelve seconds, we've got to answer this question. No, no, it's all right. We can go a little bit over. Uh, do economists really believe that humans are rational, or is it more that they expect the group behavior to be rational with respect to policies, i.e., like price control, supply, demand, um, things of that nature? That's a really good question. Now, typically. I would say, well, no. Um, economists are, you know, believe it or not, normally relatively intelligent individuals, and they do realise that people are dumb, um, really, really dumb, you know, oftentimes, and uh, it doesn't, especially not on an individual level, work out like the beautiful set of assumptions that we give ourselves that, you know, people have perfect access to information, uh, you know, people are always going to make the most, uh, you know, accurate choice that's going to give them the most marginal value and, and all of these lovely little things that, you know, these, these fairy tales that we tell ourselves. Um, there are two reasons why we do it. Uh, one is obviously it makes it a lot easier to kind of work with and address theories, policies, uh, you know, uh, handle assumptions that we have to make, especially when we're sort of predicting how um, people will react to, you know, big decisions that are going to affect, you know, thousands or tens of thousands or, you know, millions of people. Um, and then the second part of that is that when we are looking at groups that large, um, the hope is that on average, um, by aggregate, just by the sense that it's we're dealing with such large numbers, um, that every kind of weirdo that, that you know, does something completely irrational will be offset by another weirdo that does something, you know, the mirror image of that irrationality. And, uh, you know, the law of large numbers means that it will eventually kind of sort of fall in line with what we assume uh, would be a logical decision. Does that actually work? Um, well, yeah, uh, it does, you know, in, in certain applications. But there are actually certain applications where uh, it doesn't work and people are predictably stupid. Um, and unfortunately, people are predictably stupid one way or the other. I want to add to that right there because you use the word predictability. Um, and that's one of the key uh, things that I've come to understand with under, with evaluating just under, I'm trying to say uh, evaluating the rationality that people have. We find that people are can make uh, very good decisions for small tasks, small tasks which aren't uh, overly complicated. Um, things that, are, that seem obvious uh, to one person seem obvious to everybody else. And you know people have a strong preference for choosing one option or another. Now it becomes a, a lot more difficult to say that people are rational when you start adding more and more and more uh, information into the problem. You start making the problem more complex. 
at that point, it really is un you're uncertain. But if you can uh, see that in this problem, people constantly make the same decision, what we've kind of described that as, at least in behavioral economics and behavioral finance, is that people are rationally irrational and that they will consistently make these choices. These choices might be uh, suboptimal, but they are nonetheless, nonetheless the, the choices that pretty much everybody makes. And so we, we start seeing that there's clearly a wiring uh, that people have um, for approaching these problems. It, it uh, also I, depends on what you mean when you say rational, right? Exactly. I mean, so what, what Austrians mean at least um, is just that people are like aiming at some, uh, some subjective end that they have, like they want to accomplish X and they believe that uh, subjectively, they believe that doing Y is going to bring really a non-statement because all human action really is um, uh, subjectively rational even if objectively it might not be. Yeah. And even, and, and, and if mathematically it looks suboptimal, uh, you know, famous case with, uh, behavioral finance is, uh, retirement savings. People are notoriously bad at saving for retirement and also selecting retirement plans. Uh, it, they found that a company that gives, uh, you know, 50 different retirement, uh, option plans to their employees has less overall uh, retirement savings amounts than a company that just gives four options. Why is this the case? Well, because a person doesn't want to sit around and go through 50 different options trying to figure out which one is the most optimal for them. No one has the time to do that. Um, instead, what they want to do is they want to be told what is the optimal one uh, and they want to uh, you know, just be by default already in a plan and then have to figure out whether or not to change it. Same thing. That's, that's another case study right there. It's turns out that if you uh, automatically enroll your, uh, employees into retirement savings accounts, they will have more retirement. They will have more, uh, assets under management by the time that they retire than if they hadn't been automatically enrolled because people are lazy and people have a barrier, uh, uh have, have a threshold that you have to get over before they will actually start, uh, you know, doing something that is advantageous for them. Right. Every, like we, we in, here in America, at least we tell people save for retirement, but we're really bad at doing that. Um, and it's, we look at this and say, why are we bad at this? It's because we're rationally bad at this because, uh, uh, we consistently make the same decisions in these certain situations. And I think this is a really good example, actually. Um, if, if I could hijack that to talk about, um, you know, why economists can sometimes get away with making these, um, you know, very, very broad, very, very sort of, um, I suppose, uh, what's the word? like sterile assumptions about human nature where, you know, everyone's just like, you know, Mr. Roboto making the best decision. Because um, let's, let's take, um, you know, let's take, uh, retirement savings as um, you know the the go to. Now we all know that saving for retirement is very very important, right? You know you want to make sure that you're not relying on on the government, uh, you know to you know have, live a subsistence lifestyle. Um, you know once you can no longer work, so having you know something to to make you basically financially independent in old age is uh, is incredibly important. And I could speak endlessly about that. It's actually, you know to be honest, a, a topic that I'm very very passionate about, but um, 
for the sake of what we're looking at here, um, we see that as, you know, saving for retirement as what we would consider a logical thing for people to take. So if economists were to make that assumption, we could say, um, you know, saving for retirement is logical, uh, it's beneficial, it gives people good marginal value, therefore we expect people to do it. And we expect people to do it at this rate. Now, um, in reality, of course, it doesn't always hold true that people will do it. But we assume that for everybody that just completely slacks on their uh, retirement savings, there will be someone um, who is extra good at saving for retirement so that eventually it all kind of merges towards this nice, uh, you know, average assumption where it's somewhere in the middle that people are kind of on average putting just the right amount of money away into savings. Now, if we introduce um, behavioral economics, behavioral economics goes, okay, we've got these assumptions, but there are some things that people are consistently bad at. Let's take retirement savings, for for instance. In traditional, you know, if we had a traditional economic assumption, we would say, okay, people, some people are good at saving for retirement, some people are bad at saving for retirement. Those people, you know, kind of cancel each other out, statistically speaking, and we kind of get this nice, you know, average in the middle, which, which you know, is in line with our assumption. But if we introduce behavioral economics, we can see that, okay, people on average are actually worse than what we would expect at saving for retirement. So even though we would assume that, you know, people would save 10% of their income for retirement, uh, what we're actually seeing is people are going to save 2% of their income for retirement because uh, consistently and predictably people are bad at saving for retirement. So we still make assumptions, but it's assumptions based on actual human nature uh, rather than, you know, what would be sort of a good rational objective outcome. Um, and that's a very, very sort of basic uh, look at, at, you know, why we sort of um, make these assumptions and, and what we kind of do about them to make better assumptions. Um, but unless anyone has any severe objections to what I just sort of said in that example, uh, we are going to move on to the next topic. So speak I, now. If I have a small piece. one. I mean, so yeah. my, my problem with this, uh, you know, saying uh, that you can even measure uh, how much somebody is putting away for retirement is just, you know, there's many different retirement strategies. Like you could have a lot of kids, for example, that's the traditional way of doing it. And you have an expectation that the kids are going to be taking care of you. If you're a business owner, maybe you're building up, um, you know, equity in that business and and also uh, having kids that can take over that business. Um, that there's, there's a lot of factors here in retirement planning that's not necessarily visible in data. Um, so I, I have a problem with even, you know, saying for certain that you can, that you can even measure what people's retirement plans are. Yeah, and I think that's that's potentially fair. Now, uh, obviously, that again, it's one of those things that sort of murkies up the data. Um, but hey, maybe uh, maybe if we became so objective about it that we we took it even back a, a degree further than that, uh, we could say, you know, obviously, investing your time into raising some kids is is akin to a uh, a monetary investment into like a, a pension fund or a uh, you know a four hundred one k or a superannuation fund or something like that. Um, you know, it all depends on, I suppose, just how far back and objectively you're looking at it. But uh, I suppose that is, you know, a fantastic example of, um, you know, there are always things that are lost in, um, you know, looking at, you know, huge data sets. 
um, which, you know, these, these sorts of decisions normally um, subsist of. Um, but yeah, yeah, good, great addition there. Um, thanks for that. Cool. All right. So uh, we're only ooh, ugh, 10 minutes behind. Um, what was supposed to take one minute to answer actually ended up taking my 11 bad. minutes to answer. No, 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 no. That's, that's fine. Um, cool. Now, um, I, what's the next one? Uh, we're looking at global banking now. So this is an interesting one. Um, and I think, uh, obviously, this is one of those ones that's less a theory and more, um, I suppose it was more of a history lesson than it was necessarily an economics lesson. But it is still really important to, uh, you know, understand and, um, you know, analyse and kind of look at how it's evolved over time into this kind of um, big beastly thing um, that people to be honest don't really understand they um, don't so they, 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 they absolutely they, don't yeah so they, they 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 have this really um i suppose surface level thing and and you know i think if you look at banks um the way that most people look at them uh it's like oh my god you know they're just these big institutions that charge me all these interests and all these fees and aren't they evil look at all how much profit they make and how much they pay their ceos and they look really bad um, for the people that dig like just one inch deeper, they'll see things like, you know, money creation through debt and, uh, you know, like uh, marginal reserves and, and things like that. Uh, sorry, fractional reserve uh, banking systems. And they'll be like, oh, my God, this is even more evil than I expected. Uh, it, it's one of those things where you kind of actually sort of have to dig really deep uh, and go into a lot of the kind of, you know, if I'm honest, the boring stuff to really realize the history. that. The history you need the history yeah like, the, the history and 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 the stuff that like no one sort of really kind of looks at to say okay look you know on, on the level this this all sort of seems kind of sinister and, and you can certainly weave a, a tale that sort of says oh my goodness these these guys are you know they they control the the universe um but in reality it's like okay you know obviously they have a lot of power they have a lot of influence um you know but they're an industry like any of them um they have systems in place that that seem bizarre to outside users, but um, realistically, it's just one of those things that's it's an optimal optimal function um, for the industry that they are in. Um, and I think there are still issues, but I don't think the issues are fundamentally how we do uh, or how we conduct banking or the mechanics of of modern banking, um, but more so how it's conducted. Uh, in the sense that it's it's increasingly speculative, um, and it's increasingly, you know, moving towards these things that tend to cause um, these these booms and busts um, more so than than what we really should be working towards. Now, um, does anyone? I expect this actually to be something that we can kind of cover off pretty quickly. But does anyone have anything to to add or anything that they took particular issue with um, about the video? Because if there's one thing that raises controversy, it's it's talking about banking. Uh, at all and you know obviously there's the crazy people that you know talk about the, the lizards that control the federal reserve and all that sort of stuff but um you know but even sort of a step back from that about what was sort of said in that video oh, i was just going to say um there is very very good evidence that especially in the last uh, 30 years maybe 40 years uh the banking sector or finance sector in general is, is too blo too bloated too big and as part of that sort of a more concrete thing is that it sucks up a lot of um, talent, like, you know, very talented people brought in and it's also very, very high wages. And of course, in banking, it's not entirely obvious that what everyone is doing or at the very least what the people at the top are doing 
is providing much value for the real economy. And so then, you know, you get these really, really high paid people, but it's not entirely obvious uh, that if, you know, if they weren't bankers or if they weren't in the industry, what else would they be? Would they be something in, in another profession that does provide more value? And there's pretty good evidence uh, that there's quite a few um, people like that. And the banking in general has just become really bloated. And especially with, of course, you know, your financial products, like the crazy ones like mortgage-backed securities, derivatives, derivatives, credit default swaps, CDOs, and all that kind of jazz. And it's not entirely obvious that it increases liquidity or really helps the economy that much, at least compared to the cost that they impose upon society. Yeah, and I think that's a really good takeaway. And I was actually kind of going to skim over that because I think that was one of the big takeaways of the video as well, um, was the fact that banks are financial intermediaries. That's their job. They're there to facilitate trade, you know, make sure that we can get cash to kind of do what it is, um, you know, keep keep money on hand so that it's easily available and, and safe for the users of that currency, uh, as well as provide funding to hopeful initiatives that can deliver more value back to society, you know, um, getting Uncle Elbert his farm so that he can, you know, produce wheat to make bread for, for our society and we're all that much richer for it where otherwise he wouldn't have been able to afford um, to, you know, to buy that farm. And um, and you're absolutely right, you know, business the banks have become these, you know, very, very opaque, very, very convoluted, very complex um, things that, you know, um, for starters, you know, let, let's let's just look at it sort of before we even kind of get to the human talent vacuum that they are. Um, they are intermediaries. The more money that is going to banks as profit um, or to these institutions as fees and, and interest, um, you know, consultancy wages and all that sort of um, all that sort of stuff uh, is money that's not out there being used productively um, it's not money that's going to reward those who genuinely provide value to an economy now banking um, still does provide value but the value that it adds is nowhere near proportional to the size of what the industry is now uh, and the profits that it that it draws in um, and you know I say this as someone who works in banking. So I don't know, maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot. And, uh, and you know, maybe if Compound Daily was on here, he, he would vehemently uh, defend uh, this this industry that, that is, you know, obviously. I'll do it for him. <laughs> Go, ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the things that uh, we're taught in, uh, in, in grad school uh, when you're getting a master's of finance is that financial engineering doesn't do anything uh, at the end of the day. It doesn't add uh, value. What it does add is uh, structural protection. Uh, so it basically boils down to risk management. Um, the one nice thing about uh, the, these institutions is that they can create these types of products that you know provide uh, you know unique types of security. The idea with mortgage-backed securities is is that if you take a, a large enough pool of of mortgages, um, then you can bundle it up together as one single product. That way, if only a couple of them fail, uh, then you can still you still are profiting from the overall general stream, and that creates uh, what is uh, it's almost like 
the equivalent of a, a bond or a, a coupon uh, paying bond and that you know the coupon's going to come. And the idea was, you know, mortgages are, you know, traditionally safe investments. People always pay their mortgages and that those assumptions, those are sort of some strong assumptions. However, what's, what's not a good assumption is, is, or I'm sorry, what's not a good practice is giving out mortgages to people who are not qualified for mortgages, um, which is in itself a, a product of the incentives to create more of these mortgage-backed securities, more of these products, and continue to push them out. Um, there's a reason why a lot of people, there was a huge glut uh, in like 2006 where people just stopped buying mortgage-backed securities because they, they had enough. They're like, I don't need any of these. And so start pushing more and more risky stuff because risky stuff is cheap stuff. Um, and it offers high rewards. Um, and so long as these, you know, the, the, the banks or the, they're, they're in the intermediaries are, uh, you know, purchasing these, uh, these, the individual mortgages from, uh, the originators, bundling them up as, uh, their own securitizations, their own package, and then selling them off. They're just in an intermediary. They're not holding them on their books. And so they'll keep churning those out so long as there is a supply they'll keep taking that supply they'll keep running it through their little factory and then shipping out the product and they will keep doing that even when there is no demand for the product and that was what really caused the the uh or one of the big contributors to to the 2007 2008 uh financial crisis um and just to just to clarify, that was supposed to be a defense of the banking yeah, industry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and but but the whole thing is the original idea is that these these ideas are tried and tested, and they worked for a really long time. Uh, it's just that when we did have some a lot of bad actors and a lot of uh, people who are in the game for the short run, who are not mm. interested in the long run. Whereas yeah. uh, finance is a general the most successful you know finance is looking long term. It doesn't care about the the short term profits. Um, of of how can i how can i best uh you know um get or you know increase revenue you know uh time and time again you know quarter after quarter but rather it's like what do i need to do today so that in the future i am secure i am profitable and and also uh i haven't you know sunk an entire ship yeah so i, I think have some other... nodes by the way uh yeah, so, yeah. I, I think one, one thing, and I was actually going to hand over to you, Matt, is because I think you would have a really interesting opinion on the subject. Um, one one thing is, especially when we're talking about risk management, uh, and risk management is, for those it, it for those of you sort of not in the know, it sounds really unsexy. Um, oh, yeah, you're just, in, you're just in risk management. And you, you normally think, you know, when you're talking about investment banking, oh, you know, I want to be at, I want to be the one that's like, you know, on the phone trading or, or things like that. No, 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 no. Uh, if you want to be, um, you know, like a top dog in in, in investment banking, uh, you want to be in risk management because that is literally the sexiest part of, um, you know, the entire operation these days. Because um, they all just assume that you know returns are a given. It's all about sort of the risk that you take on with it. Uh, but that's a complete aside. One thing that I really want to say is that risk management acts to control the risk of the bank, not um, the economy as a whole. And oftentimes that is achieved by passing passing additional costs on to um you know the the people that this intermediary facilitates um not directly but you know if you sort of follow the the, the trail that's where it kind of ends up 
Um, but one thing that I will sort of pass out and sort of pass along and say is that um, whether it's, you know, a correlation rather than a causation, but, um, you know, the most successful, um, you know, economies in the world uh, tend to have a very large financial sector. Um, so, so make of that what you will, I suppose. Um, I would be interested to actually sort of see it's, a study it, that... And it, I will argue that it's because at the end of the day, um, there are a lot of people who have, you know, capital that they don't have usage for. They don't know what to use, uh, what to use. And rather than them individually going out and trying to find the right investments, the one thing that they can like put their trust in, they will go to an intermediary. And they'll either say, I can deposit my money here and get a small return, or I will, you know, conduct business with them uh, so that, you know, they'll open um, or they'll give me finance, they'll give me a financial advisor and yeah. then they'll manage my, uh, my money for me. And then that's one less thing I have to worry about, which is great in theory, so long as, you know, the system works. Um, and for the most part, I mean, throughout history, it has worked. Uh, otherwise, if it, I mean, if it hadn't worked, we would not be here. Um, and also, this this institution would not exist itself. Yeah, you're probably right. Now, I'll hand over to Matthias because he always brings a unique perspective and and backs it up really, really well. So, um, so go ahead. What were, you, what were your notes on on this whole thing? And then we will quickly move over to Amazon because I think there's some interesting things to discuss there as well. And then we'll uh, we'll get it all wrapped up. Yeah, so I guess I'll just take, you know, some of the headlines. I've just been taking some notes while everybody has been talking. Um, so the first thing I wanted to touch on is just um, uh, just to to hammer down what the purpose of banks and, and other financial intermediaries really is. Um, the, the key thing that they're doing is allocating resources in society. That's really what the whole exercise is about. And that is extremely important. There is... Um, uh, this is something like maybe maybe it was just the phrasing that you used, Peter. But but I think it's important to um, to recognize that this is not something that we should just have you know anybody doing. And in my opinion, it should actually be the smartest people in society that are doing this because it is literally the engine of economic growth. Um, and I'm not just talking about you know commercial banks that are giving money to SMEs or whatever. <clears throat> I'm also t also talking about investment banks. I'm also talking about funds, you know, there, there's, there's many different names for all of these financial institutions that are essentially doing the same job, which is allocating resources. Um, then one of the notes I wanted to make more broadly on the video is that it, one of the core problems I see in the current financial system is that there is um, uh, a tendency in uh, politics to forget what interest rates actually are. Uh, and it, it it's so basic, but it 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 bears repeating. I think um, said so interest rates are the price of credit, um, and it's the same thing as you know the price of buying a car or the price of you know whatever else in society. It, it's important that there's a price of credit because credit, uh, despite what MMTers like to say, the uh, credit is not uh, infinite, right? We um, uh, ultimately, the money that you're getting in credit has to be spent. Like the value of that money is that it it can be spent on buying resources. And the problem with setting the interest rate too low is that 
if the if the price of credit is too low, um, we're effectively um, allowing companies that uh, would would not be like will not be able to finish their products. We're allowing them to take on resources and allocate them towards the the means that they that they want to allocate them towards, even though they they're definitely going to fail. And like we we've seen this especially a lot in in the tech industry, uh, both um, you know. Uh, in the dot-com bubble, and arguably, I think, again, today, with uh, all of these companies that are not profitable and will never be profitable. Um, uh, like, you know, all the ride-sharing companies, for example, it, all, of, all of these uh, companies are never going to be profitable, like most of them anyway. Some of them will, but uh, there's a lot of these companies that should have never gotten funding. Um, and... The, this basically, uh, just just to, to spell it out really clearly, let's say that we had enough resources that a thousand companies could uh, could bring their product to market and become uh, sustainable businesses. Um, if we misallocate, uh, let's say, funds to 1,100 companies, instead of getting those 1,000 companies finished, we're maybe only going to get 900 companies. So the, the, the effect is going to be that we're going to get less economic growth than we would have if the interest rate had been what what the Austrians call the originary interest rate. The, the actual price of those savings that people have put put aside, uh, and the savings represent access to to future resources. Right? We're talking about time preference here, basically. Um, and the the last two things I'll I'll mention is just on um, you know on the bullshit jobs. Yes, it's true that there's bullshit jobs and. Um, in the financial industry, but I think it's also important to um, to point out exactly why that is. Uh, many of the bullshit jobs in brokers and banks is uh, um, or are state mandated positions. So, for example, compliance officers. Uh, compliance officers are effectively a state employee that uh, the the state forces financial institutions to hire, uh, and it's like having a snitch in your own business, right? Like everything that goes through uh, the compliance officer, um, they are personally liable for, not to the company, but to the state. And if if they um, you know start screwing around, then they're actually going to go to prison for it. So you you effectively end up with with an employee in your business that's not looking out for your interest, but is looking out for the interest of the state. Um, and th this has then led to because it, it's a giant overhead to have all of these employees that are not doing what uh, what banks and, and brokers and, and so on are actually in business to do, which is to allocate resources. What they're what they're doing is just pushing paper around. It's not creating any value at all. Um, and the whole purpose of having them, which uh, you know regulators say the purpose is to protect um, uh, especially retail investors or unsophisticated investors, but also, you know, depositors and whatever else clients that, that each of these institutions are dealing with. It, it's not clear at all that they actually accomplish that goal. Um, in some cases they are, but overall it looks very much to me and, and many other people in the financial industry as just throwing money out the window for no purpose at all. Like, because, you, like yes, you're going to. It's kind of the same thing as you know with airport security. Like, you you're going to definitely prevent people from bringing bombs into the um, into the airport in their shoes, if you're checking everybody's shoes. But you're not going to prevent you know the new way 
the people are going to try and, and blow up a plane, right? And it's the same thing in, in the financial industry. Um, as soon as, uh, you know, people know like, oh, we can't get away with, you know, doing ninja loans, they're just going to find a new thing. Like there's always a corner that you can bend to get through regulations. And I know this because I've done, like I've bent a thousand corners myself before in, in uh, different businesses, right? And, and I'm not saying that, you know, that we're doing anything immoral or anything like that, but it's just, that's the name of the game in the financial industry. You need to find these holes. That that's literally um, the only way that you can survive against your competition in the business. So if you don't do it, then you're not going to be in business. Um, and then obviously this has led to because of the overhead uh, over the past uh, decade and and a half or so. What we've seen is, uh, for example, in Europe and and the U.S., uh, the number of brokers and banks has more than halved. Actually, in case of brokers. It's two thirds of brokers that have gone out of business just over the past 15 years. And, you know, that just leads to, um, like all, all of the clients being, um, uh, in much fewer, uh, financial institutions. And that leads to, you know, higher risk when one of them goes bankrupt and that leads to higher political will to bail out these companies. And then you get you know, even, even more moral hazard than we had already. It, it's just the entire game. It's basically fucked. <laughs> I'm sorry, excuse my French, but it, it's 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 really bad, and there there's not really any way to, um, uh, there's no political will to fix it. Um, so yeah, yeah. yeah no, welcome I think that's to really... the real world in in finance. Yeah, well, yeah. Welcome to um, you know, <laughs> the, the, the the whoever. So if you want to make money, um, you know, by achieving nothing for society, go and find a loophole in in policy. Um, you know, it works, works really, really well. Uh, and I think that actually kind of neatly segues us on, um, you sort of already touched on it, but the, the big takeaway from, from Amazon, um, which is, I think, obviously Amazon's an amazing company and there's lots and lots to talk about in the sense of, you know, um, begging for regulation to, to hurt its competitors more than it's hurting itself, you know, sort of kicking the, the ladder out from, um, you know, up and comers that might be going through the same journey it, it did, you know, 20 years ago. Um, there's a lot to be said, obviously, about, you know, automation in the workforce that it's this kind of, you know, pioneering. Uh, but I think the big one, uh, the one I think is, is most important that, that people don't realize is, um, you know, it's kind of, I think, been one of the um, the big drivers of these really just disgustingly rubbish companies that are doing so incredibly well in the world these days. So Amazon, um, for those that sort of aren't 100% up to speed, has famously run, you know, little to no profits. Um, it's, its whole sort of mantra was the fact that, you know what, we're just going to grow and grow and grow. It's growth at all costs. Uh, we would much rather take these profits and, and put it towards R&D or developing some new technology or starting a new business that's going to run at a loss for five years um, and, you know, keep doing that uh, rather than just sort of rest on our laurels and return lots of profits back to our investors, even though that sounds like something that, you know, um, would be nice. And that's allowed to them to do some amazing things. But I think people have sort of taken this idea and, um, you know, I wouldn't want to say uh, really sort of taken it to the nth degree and, and really kind of given it a nasty spin in the sense that it's okay now for companies to never make a profit or to run at huge losses and, in, and live off investor funds for a very, very long time because, um, you know, Amazon did it and look at how successful they are. Um, so 
Uh, so does anyone else want to sort of pipe up and, and I, I would and say add that, anything to this? Uh, yeah. you know, Amazon did it, uh, it or was able to do it because they were able because they were successful. Like the success begets because more success when an investor, um, you know, looks at this says I'm not going to re see returns for a really long period of time. Uh, what they what, they'll see that, but they also see, look, if I invest in it, I know my money is secure. I know that they're using it to grow the business. I know for certain because look at their track record. And yes, I, I realize that I'm funding the prior person and the person after me is going to be funding mine, but eventually it stops somewhere. Right. And, uh, it's, there's also, I guess, the fear of missing out people, um, if they want to get in on that, uh, on that action. Um, when was the when is the last time that uh, Amazon has done a round of funding? Ah, uh, well, it's uh, yeah, I'm not sure actually, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's publicly listed now, so the information would would definitely be out there. But um, when they want to raise money, they just sell shares on the open market. At this point. That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know when they did it last time, but uh, in in principle, they can do it all the time, consistently, everything every single month if they wanted to. Okay. Yeah, but for the most part, they actually are not necessarily living on that um, so much as they are living on the fact that, you know, they have, you know, profitable centers like Amazon Web Services yeah. that are actually generating a lot of money. Yeah, and then they're reallocating that to, 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 to areas, you know, like like Amazon Retail or, um, you know, Amazon Prime you know, and things like that. You that know, the, reason that, the reason that they're capable of doing this and like not having any plan for when they're going to be profitable is because there is right now, there is no place that an investor can put their money and make, um, a, like for example, a seven-year projected profit. Like there, there is no, there is no place to put that money, and that that's uh, it gets back to the problem with global banking as it is right now, right? Where when you yeah. have uh, such low interest rates, then you know that that sets uh, that sets the floor at zero basically. And, yeah, and, and people and, and are willing to put money in all kinds of all kinds of ridiculous things. I would argue that Amazon is probably the the best of a bad bunch, or, or even something that um, might be a logical investment because uh, Amazon realizes that okay, look, to break into certain industries, you know, mass market retail, for example, we're going to have to take a hit. We're going to have to build up our infrastructure. We're going to have to bring something new to market. We're going to have to potentially undercut competition on price for a while to build up market share, and then we're going to be good to go. We're going to be good to sort of flip that switch and you know actually start profiting off this. Um, so they have a plan for profitability. And, and you know what? I would argue a, a relatively robust one at that. Um, but people have sort of bastardized that that plan and gone, oh, you know, ride sharing or house sharing or streaming or whatever it might be. And they're going, oh, this is a great industry. And it seems like we can generate lots and lots of revenue. Um, we're not realizing how ridiculously expensive the whole system is. Uh, and then sort of turning around and going, oh, okay, well, that's fine. We're just going to do what Amazon did and live off investor money, not realizing the nuance of the fact that Amazon had a plan for profitability and also they had industries to cover that. It wasn't necessarily living entirely off investor money. They were living off, um, you know, a little bit of investor money, but a little bit of, you know, um, profit it, from their profits. Yeah, and, and one of the things I want to make clear for people like in chat is that when we say like living off investor money is – this kind of uh, we're unclear about what we mean because on one hand, you know, he points out that like, well, it's not Amazon isn't literally asking for the next round of funders to fund, you know, their continuing thing. It's rather they're not giving money back to their investors. 
there is no returns yet. Rather, the money is being moved to additional ventures. And that's where I say, like, the at least the for an investor, they know their money is secure. They might not be earning returns, but they know at the end of the day that um, what they put in is it still at least what they uh, were would take out. Um, now, of course, their actual uh, their actual value it's, it's not as easy to do that. But from a high level, like you know, intelligent investor uh, perspective, that's what is going on. That is fundamentally what is going on a person if i like if you invest in amazon today you get amazon as it stands today at the very least which is worth quite a bit it's, uh, it's worth about as what as you put in <laughs> huh. uh, go yeah go ahead, one, one thing i wanted to add was you mentioned uber or just ride sharing in general uh one thing i was listening to a podcast recently and they're talking about the previous ceo of uber who got ousted uh travis kalanick no, not kalanick um yeah kalanick and yeah he was quoted as saying uh, quite publicly that uber could not survive with competition and he could you know keep borrowing money he could keep borrowing money to run uber specifically because the the grand goal the eventual goal was crush all competition be a monopoly and raise prices and he was fairly as far as i'm no, as far as I remember, fairly transparent about that. So it wasn't like, oh, you know, you, you're getting because your Uber right now is subsidized, and you know, the company loses money because it has to face competition. But that's like, that's that's a luxury you can have now. But like in the future, the idea was, you know, they were going to become the ride-sharing platform, and that's it. They were going to raise prices, and that is how they would make money, and then they could then pay investors, and that's how Uber. Sort of got away with it. I'm not sure how, obviously how it is now, but that's how, like, that's the open goal uh, under Travis uh, previously. And I'm wondering if it's something similar will happen to Amazon. For example, you know, they chase chase out the competition, you become the de facto monopoly, and then oh, you just raise your prices, and that's like one way to raise money. Yeah, I mean, and, and notice for them to yeah. be able to do that, they're going to have to lobby the government to effectively maintain their monopoly. That's the only way that they can succeed with this because I could build a ride sharing app in like six months. So it, even if they buy all of the ones that are there now, as soon as they start jacking up the prices, I, I can quite easily enter that business unless there's a high regulatory burden to do so. Yeah. Yeah, and you're not you're not wrong there. Uh, this, of course, uh, one of the things you know they might they might then lobby for for something like you know um, licenses to they have to do uh, certified background checks on all of their drivers mm, and then, almost like those things used to exist before Uber came in. Yep, uh, it's, al yeah. it's almost like you know you had to you know uh, pay you had to shell out quite a bit of money for a, a uh, token medallion. Yeah, medallions, uh, the, the famous New York. Uh, taxi medallions which they used to cost multiple million dollars yeah and now they no one ever talks about them they do they even exist anymore do, honestly oh yeah they do exist know? but i mean they're they basically crashed in price at this point like you can get them for like tens of thousands in some cases yeah yeah someone 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 uh, made a good one and i think this is actually a really important one to kind of look at um Rigo in the comment section asked about tesla now tesla is an interesting one because well like, like for a few reasons uh, obviously, still what you'd probably technically call a startup company. 
Um, but I think it, it differentiates itself a little bit from things like, you know, Netflix and, um, and Uber and, and things of that sort of ilk in the sense that it is still a, like it's a manufacturing company as much as it is a, a technology company. Um, whereas Matthew has made a fantastic example in the sense that, um, you know, hey, look, if, if Uber eventually did monopolize the market, there's nothing to stop him making an app that does exactly the same thing. You know, obviously you'd have to hire a few, you know, computer engineers to make that happen. But, you know, that's a sort of a six-month project and go to market, attract funding and, and you know, hey, you're back to square one where Uber has competition and they have to compete on price. Um, but uh, Tesla has a slightly more... Slightly more barriers to entry, I suppose, in the sense that it's 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 quite difficult to to go out and design a car and then mass manufacture it and then bring it to market. And um, yet somehow they're doing that. Uh, and yeah. I I know points to the reason why they are doing that is because, at the end of the day, Tesla is a technological powerhouse. Like they, they're just the, the the type of people that they're looking for, aren't they're looking for like the people who are innovators and they're looking for people who are uh quite interested in working on the most cutting edge stuff uh it's they're almost like an entire research organization um and i often joke that you know sometimes startup companies uh exist as solely to uh allow for people to basically research something that is in a cutting edge uh, field because otherwise they would not be able to. It's this, it's this, it's like uh, they, rather than going to say the government to get funding for uh, or like a research grant, they will, you know, go and uh, track down an investor and they'll pitch them the idea. And the investor sits there and looks and says, well, I'm only shelling out this amount of money and I can afford to lose that. So go ahead. All right. And if it pays off, it pays off. Um, and I like to joke that that's, you know, kind of what we see a lot of times. But but Tesla has really mastered, at least in my opinion, they've mastered this art of they are recruiting the best talent and they're looking for top talent. And they're willing once you're in there, they expect you to continue to be top talent and they're willing to train you to be top talent. And they're willing to they. That's what their goal is, is just pure innovation you know cutting edge don't strive don't don't uh you know settle on what has been done or what you think should be done rather imagine what hasn't been done and you know maybe experiment around with it see if it's a if it's a good idea so would you argue that like in a sense um and now i'm cognizant of the time we're already 15 minutes overdue so we will wrap it up soon but i think um would you throw tesla into the same ilk as these companies like you know, like these Ubers, um, you know, like, no, I'm not going yeah, to actually, I wanted to say, I don't think that's entirely fair because they are, they are actually profitable. Yeah. Well, I think up yeah. until recently they, they, they are, but, but historically they also had a, you know, a relatively long run of, um, you know, not turning a profit and actually sort of running at a pretty substantial loss. Uh, I'd have sure, to look at it. It's also a car company, right? It's yeah. it is definitely a capital intensive industry that they're producing so. something. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I think for that reason, um, that yeah, no, I, I I would not put Tesla. Um, and you know, apologies, I actually did not know that they even turned a profit. Um, so yeah, no wonder their their price is so high because that's no mean feat as well. Breaking into an industry like the car industry and then sort of actually turning around and turning a profit. 
um, while leading the kind of innovation that they're looking at. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like um, they probably definitely deserve um, that success then. And I wouldn't put them then in the same category as as things like Netflix, Uber, um, Snapchat, all of these sort of. Um, I would say you know, that they, they are in the same category only in the sense of the attracting technological development. That's it, solely that. Yeah, I, I would also, look, to be honest with you, um, yeah, maybe, maybe this is a bit unfair and maybe I'm not sort of seeing, um, you know, maybe I, I, I'm being very, very glib with this, but um, Uber, it's cool, but the kind of technical innovation that goes into making an app like Uber is not nearly as impressive as what goes into making a Tesla Model 3. The, the difference between the two is what they're investing their profits in. I mean, it, aside from the fact that Uber is just not profitable at all and they're actually using investor money, but let's say that they actually that they actually were profitable and, you know, uh, we're, we're taking those uh, those profits and pushing it into an, an investment of some sort. What Uber is investing in is acquisition of more clients. And what Tesla is investing in is technology, intellectual property. Um, there's quite a big difference there, right? Like, would you rather own you know, um, a customer base, like a piece of a customer base, which is effectively what you own with, with Uber? Or would you rather own, you know, what is effectively a hard asset, which is, you know, uh, great employees that uh, have technical talents to build, you know, new products, plus a lot of, um, of, of uh, secret sauce, which is the intellectual property. I know which one I would pick. Yeah, no, you're 100%. As a risk... Uh, from a risk management perspective, I pick both, not in the same allocation amount, though. <laughs> Hell no. Well, uh, it's always Captain Lock Classic sitting on the <laughs> fence. Uh, well, on that on that note, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap it up um, here. So thank you uh, again to all of our panelists and the people have asked uh, all of the questions. That is really, really fantastic. Um, and uh, apologies again about missing last week and, and we've had to sort of maybe kind of skim over a few things um, here this week when we could have probably got into a lot more detail. But uh, I think if anything, you know, maybe keeping to a bit more of a time scale, uh, to, sorry, a time frame worked well here. Um, but outside of that, I will um, say farewell to all of our viewers as well. Uh, and we'll see you all next week. I promise I actually will be here. Thank you very much. 